It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? I was saying to Pastor Floyd as the families were uh, coming down off the stage, it's a good thing we got a big stage. You know, when you talk about church growth, that's one way to do church growth. You guys keep it up, all right? Um, God is good. Uh, we're continuing uh, our study in the book of Romans. I want to encourage you. You've got a note sheet, hopefully, on the way through the door. Pull that out. Grab a pen. Uh, hopefully, we've got enough light in the house that you can see. We're going to uh, dig back into it again this week. We are in week six of a series uh, through the book of Romans, and uh, we finally made it to chapter two, so give yourselves a hand, all right? Um, chapter two, so you know what your homework is going forward, all right? Read Romans chapter two this week, okay? Um, but after greeting the church, after introducing himself, Paul gives his thesis statement, if you will, uh, for this great letter that he writes to the church in Rome. It's right there in verse 16. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And from there, you can really break up the book of Romans into four sections. This is so you guys know where we're going uh, over these next months. But the first section there is on the wrath of God. The wrath of God. The next section that we're going to look at is dealing with the grace of God. That goes all the way to the end of chapter 8. And then we're going to talk about the plan of God and the will of God. So as you can see, we're in chapter 2. We're still in this section uh, on the wrath of God. And you might ask, Pastor, why do you spend so much time talking about the wrath of God? Well, I'm going to talk about it because our text talks about it, okay? And one of the things that we do as a church is we go through Scripture chapter by chapter, line by line. We don't skip over the difficult stuff. If you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about, right? We don't skip over those passages that, that challenge our worldview for some of you, I think your worldview was challenged a little last week, and I'm just glad you're back here this week. Amen? Um, as a church, our mission is really to make fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. It's one of the reasons that we are so committed to teaching good doctrine, because we want you to experience the life change that comes from not only knowing God's Word, but actually applying it to your life. And one of my goals over the next 20 years, if God gives me 20 more years with you, is to go through every chapter, every verse of the Bible, line by line, and just expound on it, amen, in a way that brings life. Now, some of you are like, well, Pastor, you just spent like six weeks in chapter one of Romans. How are you going to do that? I don't know how we're going to do that, but we're going to keep going, and I hope you're tracking with us, right? And so we talked for the last few weeks about how um, really when we understand the wrath of God, it gives us a backdrop on which we can see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, unless you understand that we are sinners, you won't recognize your need for a Savior, right? Unless we understand the diagnosis, we won't appreciate the cure. And so toward the end of chapter 1, we talked about how God handles the pagan, how he deals with those who completely deny his existence and say, God, we want nothing to do with you. But now in chapter 2, we're going to look at how God handles the moralist. In chapter 1, we read about the down and out. In chapter 2, we're going to read about the up and up, okay? Because you see, Paul was a, a brilliant man, but he was also anointed by the Holy Spirit. And so he knew that there were certain religious people who would read what we covered last week and they would relish the fact that he described God's judgment upon the heathens, right? Listen, if last week's message just had you pointing the finger at others, ask the Lord to check your heart, okay? Now, having gone through chapter one, 
painting this horrible picture of the pagan world, if you will. You, you have this group of people, again, listening to Paul, and they're thinking, Paul, I agree with everything you said, and they're pointing the finger at those pagans, and they're saying, those people, they're bad people. They deserve your judgment, but while they're pointing the finger, you know what's happening, right? Three fingers are pointing back at them. And so Paul's now going to address the moralists, those who have a higher standard than the, the pagan world. And because of this, again, the moralists would read chapter 1 and say, well, at least we're not that way, and we don't do that. And so they were indignant at the sins of others, but would at the same time indulge in their own sins. And hear me today, the devil would be just as happy sending you to hell from the pew or from the gutter, okay? Remember what Jesus taught in the Gospel of Luke. He said that two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. And the Pharisee prayed, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not like that tax collector over there. He, he Get this, he's praying out loud. He says, I, I fast twice, twice a week. I, I, I give tithes of all that I possess. And so really he's talking himself up. And, and the problem is he doesn't see his own sinfulness or his own problems. He thinks he's great because of what he does. And, and Jesus says, but the tax collector, he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He, he stood far off and he beat his chest and he said, oh God, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? And Jesus says it was a tax collector that went away justified. So get this, one man is justifying himself and he's pointing the finger at others, but that other person is the one that Jesus said was justified. And so hear me today, yes, we can point fingers at people's behavior, but we can never pinpoint what's going on in their heart. Only God can do that, right? And so he's pointing the finger at the tax collector, and Jesus is pinpointing the fact that his heart was not right, right? That, that's the focus there. And, and Paul's going to say this to the moralist. He says this, in passing judgment on others, you condemn yourself. Here's the truth. We're often hard on others and soft on ourselves when it comes to judgment, aren't we? It's a basic weakness that we all have. We, we're usually quick to respond and say, well, that's wrong. And so we'll get in these Christian circles and we'll talk about others. It's okay to gossip and lie and slander, apparently, because we're talking about others, right? But remember, chapter 1, verse 32, he says, it says this. Paul writes this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. But now notice chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you, right? You have no excuse, O oh man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Listen, it's easy to talk about they, but now God's going to talk about you. It's like the man who went to the psychiatrist wearing a monkey suit, carrying a bunch of bananas, and he gets down with the psychiatrist, and he says, Doc, I really need your help. It's about my brother, right? That's the way some of us... God, I, I really need your help. Let me tell you about so-and-so, right? Now, maybe, just maybe, you saw yourself in chapter 1 last week. And I pray if that's the case, if the Holy Spirit highlighted something in that passage last week, that it's led to repentance, that it's led to a, a turning from sin and turning to Christ. But as we get into chapter 2, this is where most churchgoers, okay, will find themselves. So it's time to stop thinking about they and begin thinking about you. We need to examine ourselves, amen? Because those who would say that they're saved might still be guilty of hypocrisy, myself included. 
Maybe you've heard the phrase, faults in others I can see, but praise the Lord, there's none in me, right? That's the mindset of the moralist. Notice that the moralist is not condemned for judging others. That's not what condemns him. He's condemned because he's guilty of the same things that he judges others for. Now, this is something that the moral man would object to. He would say, no, I'm not like them at all. But Paul's going to show us how he is. But look at what he writes in regards to the judgment of God. You need to see this. Verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The King James Version says that the judgment of God is according to truth. And so the moralist judgment will be based upon this, based upon truth. You see, the moralist could also be described as a hypocrite. He's a, he's a play actor. That's literally what the word, word means. And in Jesus' time, there were actors who would put on a disguise. If they were supposed to be happy, they wouldn't just act happy. They would put on a happy face, right? If they're supposed to be sad, they'd have the sad face they would pull out. They would wear masks. They would wear disguises. And Jesus said in the religious world, there are some who are hypocrites. They're actors. They just wear masks. But Paul wants to make it clear, regardless of what mask you might wear, that the judgment is going to be according to truth. In other words, God's going to pull off the mask. In the judgment, there is no disguises allowed, okay? Because truth is the standard by which God judges. It was Abraham Lincoln who said, you can fool all of the people some of the time, or you can fool some of the people all the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time, right? And you could add, you can't fool God anytime. Understand this, when we talk about God's judgment being based on truth, it's because God is omniscient. You know what that means? He's all-knowing, right? Because he is all-knowing, his judgment is always according to truth. Now, the problem is that our society right now has cast off truth. We've traded truth for pragmatism. We no longer ask, is it true? We just say, well, does it work? I want to know if it works, right? We've traded truth for style. We, we don't say, does he or she tell the truth? Instead, we say, well, do we like them? As, as a nation, we're not interested in truth. We're much more interested in the stock market, right? We've become one nation under greed rather than one nation under God. Why? Because it goes back to what we talked about last week, right? We exchange the truth for a lie. We've exchanged the creator for his creation. And so when we talk about knowledge as, as a people, we worship knowledge but at the same time, we cast off truth. It's interesting, I was reading this week that it's been said that if you took all of the knowledge of the world from creation until about 1845, it would measure about an inch on a scale. From 1845 to 1945, it would be about three inches. From 1945 to 1975, it would be as high as the Washington Monument. From 1975 on, it would be out of sight. Understand, right now, knowledge is growing exponentially and yet truth has been disregarded you know the prophet daniel said that in the last days that knowledge would increase again we see that right now right but the word of god also talks about men who are ever learning and yet not able to come to the knowledge of truth in terms of knowledge we know more than ever right and if we don't know it what do we do we youtube it man people are like you're pretty handy no i just got youtube right i don't know how to do this youtube told me how to do it right we have more knowledge at, at the at access right now at our fingertips, and yet morally, right now, we're in kindergarten as a nation. And that's me being generous. But just think about all that we've been given as the people of God. Right now, you're sitting in church, and many of you have a Bible open or on your phone, 
That Bible right now is the word of truth. If you've been born again, you've been given the Holy Spirit. That is the spirit of truth. Right here at Grace Point, God is building his church. We are the pillar of truth. God sent his son Jesus who is the way and he is the truth, amen? But we know this, in our world, truth is being disregarded. It's being cast off. But Paul's gonna say here, you know what? The moralist judgment, the hypocrite's judgment, it's gonna be based on the facts. God will judge and condemn the moralist based on the facts. Now, the hypocrite doesn't understand this, and so there are three mistakes that they make. I want you to write these down. Mistake number one, mistake number one, they believe that the outward appearance is all that matters. The moralist thinks, man, if he can appear righteous to others, he will be righteous. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of his day, and he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I read those verses and I think, man, the way that men do dishes today hasn't changed much in 2,000 years, right? The Pharisees, they're cleaning the outside, wiping the outside, but inside the cup there's coffee stains, right? And the Pharisee, man, we think we're good until the wife comes home and then we know we're not good, right? And so they're doing that with their own lives, right? They're saying, man, if I can put on the appearance of being righteous, I don't have to deal with my heart. I don't have to go deeper, right? As long as people think I'm righteous, well, then I'm righteous. But Jesus calls attention to what's going on in their heart. And can I just say, your heart should break for the hypocrite because the problem with the hypocrite is not on the outside, it's on the inside. And so instead of dealing with the inside, they just pretend. The hypocrite doesn't really have enough courage to outright serve the devil, and yet he doesn't understand enough of God's grace to fully serve the Lord, and so he just stays in the middle, and he kind of plays church and pretends. But the moralist, the hypocrite, like all of us, is going to be judged according to truth. His outward appearance is not going to make any difference on the day of judgment. But the second mistake that he makes is this, is to think if he's not having trouble, he must be good with God. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's just thinking, man, if everything's going good in life, if I'm healthy and I'm wealthy, I, I don't have any problems, that must mean God approves of everything I do, right? everything's fine and there's nothing I have to repent of because obviously, look at the way that God's blessing me. But I need to say this today. The blessings of God don't necessarily mean that you're right with God. In fact, Scripture teaches us that God gives you blessings to bring you to him. And so it doesn't mean that you don't need to repent. It's actually the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. And here's the reality. The goodness of God will only make your judgment more severe if you fall from the goodness of God. If God is blessing your life right now, I just want to encourage you, turn to him. Don't, don't think for a minute that, that God's goodness is an invitation to just keep living in sin. 
Because the greater the blessing, if those blessings are refused, the greater the judgment when the judgment comes. You know that Sodom and Gomorrah had a really good fiscal year just before the brimstone fell. Do you know that? Uh, it's according to Scripture, right? Bible says this, that they had fullness of bread and idleness. It, it means that, that people just had so much and they didn't even have to go to work. They could just sit around. Well, it sounds a lot like a season we just went through, right? But there's so much prosperity and yet the fire did fall. Judgment did come. We know that. Why? Because the goodness of God did not lead them to repentance. Luke chapter 13, there's a, a passage of scripture. It's a good, uh, good bedtime scripture for you parents. I'm kidding. Uh, Luke 13, verse 1, they're, they're arguing with Jesus, and they're basically saying that people are, are, are judged based on how good they are. And he says this, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So in the same regard, don't think for a second, just because you see someone that's going through a difficult time, that that means that God is judging them. I, I don't think that, that if you don't have trouble, that God is not going to judge you, right? Um, Jesus said, whether a tower falls on you or not, if you don't repent, he said, you're going to perish. You see, the moralist, he, he doesn't get this. He doesn't understand this. Again, he thinks the outward appearance is all that matters. He thinks if he's not facing any problems in life, he must be good with God, right? And Paul points out that the moralist himself, he says this, that he presumes upon the kindness the forbearance and the patience of God, which should all lead the moralist to a place of humble repentance. It, it shouldn't lead to this attitude of superiority. Listen, when we talk about God's kindness, it can be considered in regards to our past sin, right? He has, he's shown kindness to us because he's not judged us even though we deserve it. And then if you talk about forbearance, what is that? Well, it speaks to the way God handles our present sin, right? Right now, this very hour, we have fallen short of his glory, and yet he holds back judgment against us. And finally, you hear that word patience or long-suffering. It refers to God's kindness to us in regards to future sin. Future sin. He knows that we're going to stumble, that we're going to fall tomorrow, and yet he holds back his judgment. Now, if you think about all of this, it's no surprise that Paul describes these three aspects of God's kindness. He says together, they are the riches of God's kindness. Now, the riches of God's mercy can really be measured. Let me give you four things that we can use to measure God's uh, mercy in our lives. Number one is his greatness. His greatness. Understand, to wrong a great man is a great wrong, and God is the greatest of all, and yet he shows mercy. Also, his omniscience, right? Imagine if someone knew all of your sin, would they show you mercy? Yet God knows your sin, and he shows mercy. His power. Sometimes wrongs aren't dealt with because they're out of our power, right? You say, got nothing that I can do about that. And yet God is able to settle every wrong against him, and yet he is rich in mercy. And finally, think about the object of his mercy. Mere men, mere mortals. 
Would we show mercy to an ant? I got to tell you, if they're in my house, I don't show mercy. There's no mercy. But yet God, he's rich in mercy, amen? He's rich in mercy. Knowing how great God's kindness is, can I just say, it is a great sin to presume upon the graciousness of God. And we easily come to believe that we deserve his kindness, that we deserve his goodness. Many people, hear me, they misunderstand the goodness of God uh, toward the wicked. They don't understand the entire reason for it is to lead them to repentance. We should see the goodness of God, and we should understand, man, God has been better to me than I ever deserve. God has shown me kindness when I've ignored him. God has shown me kindness when when I mocked him. God is perfectly willing to forgive me. Therefore, he should be served with my life out of simple gratitude. I have to ask, though, this question. Maybe you're here and you would say, well, I'm going to wait for God to drive me to repentance. Listen, I don't believe he works like that. He leads you to repentance. By his goodness in your life, he leads you to repentance. But the third mistake that the moralist makes is this. He thinks that delayed judgment means no judgment at all. Delayed judgment means no judgment at all. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, that verse can be confusing, so let me explain to you what it means. When it is, it, it's, what it's saying there is when God is good to you, and he blesses you, or God blesses a nation, but then that nation hardens its heart, or you as an individual, you harden your heart. You are, in essence, storing up wrath. You're making deposits of wrath in the bank, and one day, the judgment is going to come, and God's going to say to the moralist, okay, what did you do with all my blessings? I I prospered you. What did you do? You hardened your heart because you believed that God's not going to judge right away. I got plenty of time. You see, the moralist thinks that he treasures up merit with God as he condemns those that he would consider sinners around him, right? But really, he's treasuring up wrath. He says, you see them, God? God, I thank God I'm not like them. And as he does that, he stores up the wrath of God. Now, here's the reason that God just just doesn't judge right away, because he waits for all the sin to ripen. You see, you store up wrath, and you put it in the bank, and that the judgment of God, there's compound interest on your sin, okay? Understand, when you sin against God, it doesn't end right there and now. And so God is saying there's a day coming, it's a day of wrath, when the righteous judgment of God will be revealed. Again, it's going to be a judgment according to truth. God's going to take off the masks. He's going to tear down the outward appearance. He's, he's going to say, you know what, all of that doesn't really matter. Let's talk about who you really are. You see, in the first coming of Jesus, the loving character of God was revealed with with great emphasis. At the second coming of Jesus, the righteous judgment of God will be revealed. And and let me be honest with you. You're not getting away with your sin. So when you think, yeah, you know what, it's no big deal. I'm not being judged right now. There's no no consequences to this. And you continue on. Look at verse 3 again. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them, that you're going to escape the judgment of God. Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? It's a rhetorical question, right? Again, you can't do that. Again, because the judgment is according to truth. But I want you to see something else here. Because the judgment is not only according to truth, our passage is going to say it's also according to deeds. Verse 6, 
he will render to each one according to his works. Somehow we get this idea. Well, we're church people. We have this special distinction, right? Look at verse 11. For God shows no partiality. You see, many people have this idea that at the judgment, God's going to grade on a curve. And so, yeah, I got some issues, but I'm not as bad as them, right? And so the moralist is always comparing themselves to the pagan. They're measuring themselves up against the pagan rather than the standard of God's word. And they say, I'm not as bad as that guy. Again, God's going to grade on a curve, but that's another mistake they make. Look at James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Here's the reality. What God demands is absolute perfection. And therefore, none of us can meet that demand. It's exactly why we need the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? We need the righteousness of God that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. Let me ask, is there anyone in the room today that has kept all 10 commandments? Anyone want to be brave enough to say, I've kept them all? Of course not. Nobody's going to take a chance, right? So then you'll say, well, all right, pastor, not all 10, but maybe I've broken one or two. Okay, I don't believe you on that but let's, let's make believe, all right? You've only broken one commandment. Now imagine you're hanging over a fire and you're taking hold of a, a link with 10 chains. Nine of those chains are made of steel, but one of them is made out of paper. What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? Again, James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of them all. Again, the moralist is going to be judged according to his deeds. So first of all, he's going to be judged according to his actions. Again, look at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. You see, the most moral man or woman in the room today is just as lost as a hardened criminal without a second birth. Jesus said to Nicodemus, who was a, a pretty moral guy, pretty good guy, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And so the moralist is going to be judged according to their actions as well as their attitude. Look at verses 7 and 8. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. He's talking about attitudes there, right? Self-seeking. You see, every Sunday morning, There are those of you who come into the church building and you're really seeking God. And there are others of you that as I'm preaching, you're mentally arguing with me right now. Maybe you don't like what I'm saying and so you're like, I'm going to find some fault in that. That wasn't right. And and can I just say that would be easy to do. I'm flawed, okay? I mean, if you come into this place and and you're looking for something to criticize, you can find something starting with me. But listen, I want to tell you, I want to tell you something. It's very important. Hear me. If you come here on a Sunday morning, and you're looking for God, I believe you can find God because he's here. Hear me, you're going to find what you're looking for. And the real question is, are you entering these doors as a seeker or a scorner? Because God says when he comes, he's not going to judge only actions, he's going to also judge attitudes. Are you here today looking for God, or are you looking for some loophole, some excuse to not completely surrender your life to him? If you're looking to find fault with something in this place, I guarantee you'll find it. But if you come through these doors looking for God, understand he's here. He's in the room. He's knocking on the door of your heart. And so when we talk about the moralist, hear me, he's someone who's going to be judged by his actions, but also by his attitudes. And finally, I would say this, he's going to be judged by his advantages. And this is something that ought to frighten each and every one of us in the room. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first 
and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Listen, because all fall short of the standard of God's constant goodness, God's wrath will come to all who do evil without respect to whether they're Jew or Gentile. He says here the judgment comes to the Jew first. Why? Because they're first in line for the gospel, right? They're first in line for the reward. They'll also be first in line for the judgment. You see, the Jews had the word of God, right? They had the Old Testament. And to whom much is given, much is required, much is expected. Can I just say, God's going to hold you responsible for being in the building today. God is going to judge some based on their advantage. Because right now, there are millions of people on the earth who've never heard the name of Jesus. But God knows what you've heard. God knows what you've received. To whom much is given, much is required. Listen, it's absolutely tragic for anyone to go to hell from any remote place on earth but I think it's even more tragic to go to hell from a comfortable church building. What a tragedy it would be to usher every week and then spend eternity in hell. To sing in the choir and then spend eternity in hell. And you say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Matthew 7, 22, Jesus said these words. He said, on that day, talking about the day of judgment, there will be many that say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, there will be those on the judgment day that have gone through all of the motions, but they were never really saved. They were never really born again. And so they'll be judged according to the truth, according to their deeds, according to their actions, according to their advantages. God is going to take all of that into account when he judges. But finally, understand this. God is going to judge the moralist the same way he judges all of us. It's in this way, according to the gospel. Look ahead to verse 16. Paul's going to write this. This is skipping ahead a little bit. He says, on that day, when according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now, you may be saying, well, what is it? I mean, you said God judges according to, to truth, Pastor. You said he judges according to deeds and attitudes, but now you say it's according to the gospel. Listen, if the gospel doesn't save you, that same gospel will judge you. Because the same Jesus who offers you salvation will one day be your judge if you don't receive him as your Savior. Acts 17.31 tells us he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What does that mean? It means that the resurrection of Jesus that, that's meant to save you, that very resurrection can condemn you. When we talk about the gospel, understand it's a two-edged sword, right? The, the, the same gospel that can come and heal is, is the same gospel that all of us are going to be judged according to. And so as you look there at verse 9, I, the words are very strong, right? Paul says there will be tribulation and distress for everyone who does evil. Those are strong words, right? But don't miss what, what else he says there. He says, don't miss this. There's also a promise of glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. In other words, God blesses what is good and he judges what is evil. And so what do we take from this today? How do we apply this to our lives, right? Here's what you need to understand. If you have not exchanged your sins for the righteousness of Christ, you better not wait another day. Why? Because God is good and God is just. 
And so if you're a believer, you've received the righteousness of Christ, and now you ought to be seeking to live a holy life. And, and you can be encouraged. God's going to reward your labor in him, and, and one day you will enter into an eternal reward because of what Jesus did for you. You, you will be repaid in heaven. Check this out. For what God did through you, right? You know what? We often emphasize the, the fact that salvation is not by works, and I, I think we should do that. We need to understand salvation is, is by faith, right? We need to understand that. But we can't miss the fact that our heavenly reward is a gift for the work that we allow God to do through our lives. Glory and honor and peace are there for all who will take off the mask and let God actually work on the heart because then and only then can you allow the life of Jesus to be made manifest in you. This is the only way to be righteous in the eyes of God. We're going to talk more and more about this as we go through this letter to the Romans. But I want you to see this as we close today, that, that Paul is laying out a, a very clear distinction here. One day we will be judged based on truth. Again, the, the mask will be taken down. There will be no disguises allowed at the judgment seat. And so we can either live our lives selfishly and be judged for the evil deeds we do, or we can choose to live by faith in what Jesus has done for us. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. And there's good deeds that follow. There's good deeds that follow from our life. And one day, even though those, that's a work of the Holy Spirit, we're going to be rewarded with glory and peace. But hear me today, we can't sit back and think, man, the outward appearance is all that matters. As long as I look good to others, I'm good. God sees the heart. God sees the heart. Let him deal with the heart. We can't think that if we're having no trouble, man, I must be good with God. My life is so blessed, I must be good. No, it's actually the kindness of God that ought to lead you to repentance. And finally, don't think that delayed judgment means no judgment at all. One day, we're going to be judged according to the gospel. Would you stand with me? Again, we're painting this backdrop over these weeks of the wrath of God. And I believe it's going to show us all the more rightly what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. One day we're going to be judged according to the gospel. And can I just say this morning, that's good news. The gospel itself, that's good news. That's good news. Because here's what the gospel shows us. It shows us God's kindness to sin in our past. It shows his forbearance for when we still fall short day after day. It shows his patience for sin that's yet ahead. It provides, though, most of all, it provides a solution for sin, past, present, and future. All of it is dealt with in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today so much for your word. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and you would do a work in our hearts even right now. Lord God, forgive us for always pointing the finger at others, for always being so quick to judge others, but not allowing you to do business with us. And so today, we, we would take the mask off, Lord God. We'd lay that down. Lord, we may be here today, and we've looked righteous in the eyes of others, but our hearts are so far from you. So we just pray in this moment that you would 
you would do work in our hearts. We pray as, as David even prayed, create in me a clean heart, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just come, even right now, just begin to, to call out to him. Ask him to do a work deep within your heart. can't hide behind the mask. Jesus knows. And he's provided for you what you need. There's sin in your life. There's ongoing sin. Don't think because you haven't been judged that there's no judgment at all. God wants to deal with that sin in your life. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to make you new. The Word of God says this, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as we close today, before we sing, before we worship, maybe you just need to take a moment and do business with God. Confess that thing to him. There's forgiveness available. Confess that thing to him. There's, there's cleansing available. There's healing available. Amen. And so let's just begin to worship him. Before we leave this place, just begin to lift your voice. Just begin to thank him for who he is. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord.